the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The name Abel is the Hebrew word for vanity. It means a vapor, a mist, or a breath. It represents something that is here today like a soap bubble, but you pop it and it's gone tomorrow. It's no longer around. Abel is named after vanity. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko will be here in just a moment with today's message. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Someone is here now to take your prayer request. We would love for you to be at the worship service live in person, but are not able to invite you at this time due to the current situation. But we can invite you to a live broadcast, and you can find all that information at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. And always you can listen to this message again and many others at reachingyourheart.com. Here's Pastor Mike. John Steinbeck in his novel East of Eden described the bitterness of death when a man dies alone and lost on the outside. Lost to love, lost to those who could have loved him well. He writes, when a man comes to die, no matter what his talents and influence and genius, if he dies unloved, his life must be a failure to him and dying a cold horror. It seems to me that if you or I must choose between two courses of thought or action, we should remember our dying and try so to live that our death brings no pleasure to the world. In the beginning, God made Adam and Eve to live forever and be loved forever. Life was not just existence. Life was love. Life was a steady stream of divine love that bathed them in the sense of God's acceptance. They were conceived in a heart of love. They were formed by hands that loved. They were made to love and be loved. They were creatures in association with other creatures God had made this way. In the Garden of Eden, they lost the love that God had given them. They lost the love they held tight with each other for a lie. The first lie was an attack upon God's love, the truth of the character of God. And in the Garden of Eden, they betrayed the love that made them, and they began to die as soon as they betrayed that love. Love mustered the strength. Love looked deep within. Love considered the cost of saving that first couple. And love had the strength to let them go to send them away in strength so that love might search them and find them and bring their hearts back to God and to love. Genesis 3.22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here we have a very clear picture 
of a door that was shut, of a life that was lost, of Eden that was no longer accessible, of a direct relationship with God that was halted by an action of Adam and Eve that resulted in our alienation and separation that we have by nature from God. In Genesis 2.8, the Bible says, The Garden of Eden was made in the east, or literally, from the east. In Genesis 2.8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, it's very clear that when God shut the door, it says he sent them forth from Eden, and the door of the east was guarded. The east is the direction for the rising of the sun. For the Hebrew mind, time is analogous to a day, as I've said before. And the east represents the beginning or the dawn of time. I love that song, in the morning when I rise. Beautiful. What it calls to mind is that God is there in the beginning. And God can be at the end. And time is like a day. The dawn of time is the east. So the east, in that sense, is the direction of eternity. It is the direction of the beginning. Adam entered Eden when the world was young, when the world was fresh, when it was born out of the newness of eternity. And because of sin, the door to Eden from the east was closed to be never opened again. Dear heart, you cannot get into Eden from the east. You cannot find God by going back to the beginning. You cannot discover Eden anew by simply trying to assume that everything is fine and nothing happened in the beginning. You know, the problem with secular humanism is that it assumes, and I would say naively so, that we possess within our own natures, within our own makeup, the ability to create an Eden on earth because humanity is intrinsically good. And yet this is not true. It doesn't take a genius to look on the Drudge Report on the internet or to look on one of these failing flagship news channels to know that our world is grossly wrong and something is undone in the milieu and the mix of life. For the Hebrew mind, time is analogous to a day, and the east represents the beginning, the dawn of time. The east is the direction of eternity from the beginning. Adam entered Eden through the eastern door. It's interesting. I like fishing. That's no secret to many of you here. But what I have discovered is that when I go fishing, new things happen that are unexpected. And here's what happened one time when we were at Savage River. I took my son Donald out early in the morning. The sun was just rising. I didn't have much bait, so I took a little bit of a night crawler with me. And I put it on the hook, and Donald was with me, and we were throwing our line into the water. The river was low. You could literally hop from one rock to the next, and we would fish the pools looking for a catch. And I was kind of throwing my line in right in front of my feet, and this little pool didn't think there was anything there. And suddenly my rod went like this, just bent over. And I I said, my goodness, that must be a snag. And I I pulled on it, and it wouldn't move. It was just there until it moved slowly. And I realized that's no snag. I pulled, and as I pulled and the thing surfaced, it was a giant brown trout. Now, the rumor is that all fishermen are liars. And since I'm clergy, I don't want to play this thing up. But I believe, I believe that that fish was a five- to six-pound brown trout. And so I passed the rod over to my son Donald, and he began to yank on that thing. We had six-pound test on it. Now, the reason why I think, and I'm pretty sure this was at least a six-pound fish, is because when he pulled in that line, the line snapped. 
and it should hold six pounds of pressure. That was a big brown trout. I felt sick to my stomach. Donald began to cry, Dad, we lost the biggest fish of our life. And I said, yeah, we did. And I was miserable. And he was miserable. And we walked back to the campsite defeated. Now here's what happened in the aftermath of that failure. I found myself, by degree, going back to that spot and throwing my line into the water, just hoping that fish would come back to the place we had hooked him. It was almost like an obsession. Maybe I can catch that fish in the same spot I hooked him. But we have never been able to catch a trout in that same spot. You see, the beginning is gone. That capture, that event is behind us. You cannot go back to the past and capture it. You must move on. So, in the beginning, God created the world from the east. But the east is gone. That door is forever shut. So in the book of Genesis, the new Eden is not found in the east. In the book of Genesis, the new Eden is found in the west. And to find it, you must journey from the east to the west. This is a journey that every single person must make. It is a pilgrimage that every believer must make in their life. They must leave the east and move toward the west. The east is the direction for the rising of the sun, as I said before. But the west is the direction for the setting of the sun. East is the direction for the dawn of time. West is the direction for the end of time. Time is like a day, and Eden lost is in the east. To find the promised land, dear heart, to find the promised land, you must journey on to the setting of the sun. You can only enter Eden at the end of time, not at the beginning of time. That means every person here who enters Eden finds it in the West. Now, in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel was made in the, what? The East. God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees in the East, and he called him to the West where the Promised Land is positioned. The book of Hebrews says he looked for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, dear heart, God's city is not in the past. God's city is not in the east. God's city is in the west. God's future is in the west. God's future is coming at the end of time. And every believer must make a pilgrimage from the east to the west. Lot left Abraham and journeyed to the east to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's pictured going back. He's pictured retreating, trying to find the beginning of things and start over that way. Sodom and Gomorrah compared in the book of Genesis to the Garden of Eden. In the east, they are just like the Eden lost. They're pictured as a garden, but a garden that is a city of sin. Turn with me to Genesis 13, verse 10. Let's look at these verses. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Now you'll notice it says, it was watered like the garden of the Lord. It looked like it was Eden, and he went to the east to find it. It would seem to be in the position you would assume Eden was originally made. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So in the book of Genesis, east is not a good direction. It's a bad direction. It represents apostasy. It represents walking away from a faith walk with God. It represents retreating into the past instead of moving forward in faith with God. You cannot find Eden in the east by going back to God. Have you ever been tempted in your life to go back? Try and recapture that golden moment in your life you felt like Christ was close to you? 
try to relive that mountain peak in your Christian experience when you thought everything was fine. And when you try to retrace your footsteps, you find the past is gone. You cannot recapture it. You cannot distill it and make it new again. It's over. Dear heart, God would have us know in the Holy Scriptures that our focus must never be on what has been other than it becomes a platform for us to move forward in faith to what God is calling us to in the future. Dear heart, God is calling you to an experience in the future that will make the past look simple, immature, not insignificant, but what it is, something in the past. God focuses on your tomorrow and your relationship with Him. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is so easy as a believer. It is so easy to feel and think that God won't finish the work he started. Maybe when you look in the mirror and you see the flaws in your character, maybe when you fail God in your faith walk, you feel like God will leave you. Paul is saying the one who started the work will take it all the way through to completion. If you stick with him, if you move from east to west, you will enter Eden again. God has guaranteed it. Philippians 3.13, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There comes a time in every person's life when they must forget the mistakes of the past, accept God's forgiveness for those mistakes, and move into the future, walking under the umbrella of God's acceptance toward a better tomorrow. That is what the Bible is teaching. The first sign of hope on the outside of the garden was the birth of a baby boy. It's it's a fact. As soon as they leave Eden, it's the first major event. God had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and suddenly Eve is energized by the reality that she has given birth to a baby boy, the seed of the woman. Look at Genesis 4, verse 1. And now Adam knew Eve his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, there are two possible translations for the last part of this verse. Kaniti ish eth Yahweh, or Adonai. I have gotten a man with the Lord, with the help of. The word help is not there. Or some Bible scholars have said that that word eth is really a direct object marker, which puts the word that follows in kind of a state to where it becomes the object of the verb. I have gotten a man who is the Lord. Now, either way you look at it, Eve here is quite proud and happy of what has happened. You know, surely Eve must have thought that this little man was the promised one. I mean, the promise had just been made in Eden that you'll have a son. The seed of the woman will crush the head of that snake. You're going back to Eden. And she would come to that eastern gate and she would worship God there. And she felt deep inside that maybe that door would open up for her. Maybe she could go back and this is the boy who would open up the door. Uh, the name Cain is taken from the Hebrew word kana, which means to get, to acquire. It's used in Proverbs 8 to create, some argue. Cain means the begotten one or the created one. We think of the begotten, the only begotten son of God. Well, here she is naming her first son with the imagery that would call to mind a messianic figure. Now, notice Eve's boldness. She says, I have created a man. 
at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did the devil offer her? That she would be like God, right? And what is she saying here? At last she holds in her hand what she believes is God. She holds in her hands what she believes is the Messiah. And she had wished for in the garden to be like God, empowered now, surging through her heart and mind is that feeling that through the power of being a woman, the power of motherhood, she has created the Lord God. I have created a man who is the Lord. Now, does that sound pretty arrogant to you? See, Eve has not yet learned the lesson of humility she should have learned in the garden. We will return with Pastor Michael Oxentenko and his message today entitled East of Eden here in just a moment. Again, East of Eden, and it's available for you online at any time at reachingyourheart.com, by the way. We would love to have you at the worship service. If you'd like more details on that, just hang around a little bit after the broadcast. I'll have details here on the radio. But you can also go to reachingyourheart.com. You'll find details on the worship service there as well. Let's continue now with East of Eden. Here once again, Pastor Michael Oxentenko. God's acceptance is over her, but it takes a life journey to reverse the mistake and the attitude that started the sin problem. And so we see it right here with Cain at the very first incident outside the garden. Now we know at the end of Eve's life, there is a reversal of this. When Seth is born, she has been humbled by tragedy. The death of Abel in relationship to Cain has changed the way she thinks. And she has come to understand that her attitude was all wrong. Verse 25 of Genesis 4 Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, for Cain slew him. Now notice this time. She does not say, I have created a son. She says, God has appointed for me a son besides the one I lost. It was God who brought me this child. This child is a gift from God. I'm merely a steward of God's grace in my life. You see, she has grown to understand things more deeply. She does not possess the child as she did in the first case. She now realizes that she is to instruct, lead, and guide. And the name Seth in the Hebrew means to put or to set. It is an echo of the promise. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and then the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It is an echo of the promise of a Messiah. And she now realizes the only way for the promised child to come is for God's power, for God's election, for God to appoint the child. She must comply with God's plan. It takes the tragedy of Cain to teach Eve that you cannot create your own future and destiny You cannot make your own future without God. You cannot plow a path into the unknown and it really lasts unless it's God's path. When Seth is born, Eve has learned that God must appoint a child for the promise to stand. She has learned the hard way to trust in God, not herself. In Genesis 4-2, the second son is born. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground. Now, the name Abel is the Hebrew word for vanity. If you go to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2 and 3, we have a very famous verse that's used by Solomon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Abel of Abel's, says the preacher. Abel of Abel's. All is Abel. That's what the Hebrew word is. It's the word for Abel. The name Abel is the Hebrew word for vanity. It means a vapor, a mist, or a breath. 
It represents something that is here today like a soap bubble, but you pop it and it's gone tomorrow. It's no longer around. Abel is named after vanity. He is the child who had so much promise, but he's gone just like that. Abel raised sheep. Sheep were not used for food until after the flood. So the inquiring mind wants to know what in the world's going on. Why is he raising sheep? The Bible is clear. Mankind was a vegetarian until the post-flood world. We know that from Genesis 9, verse 3. So why in the world is he raising a herd of sheep here if you can't have mutton? So why was Abel watching the sheep if he couldn't eat them? Now, we have a clue in Genesis 3, 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The skins and the wool covered their nakedness and kept them warm in the outside of the garden. The animal skin was evidence that something had to die as a blood substitute to take away their shame. You see, it's no accident that sheep were sacrificial animals at the very beginning of the Bible. John would say of Christ when he was baptized in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover lamb was a lamb for a good reason, because it goes all the way back to Eden's door. The book of Revelation speaks of Christ as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And Abel was in tune with this imagery. By raising sheep, Abel showed a spiritual bent, a priestly calling. He realized that life is more than food, that the work of life is to honor the promise of God and the plan of God for a Savior. So he chose to dedicate his life to raising sheep that no one could eat because sheep pointed forward to Jesus Christ who would come and die for him. So Abel was the sheep man. Maybe in your life you serve God and you think your service doesn't benefit you directly. Dear heart, if you're a sheep person, if you serve God because of the Lamb of God, what you do matters, even if you can't experience in your own hands the fruit of it or you don't feel like it's something that you can take inside. Now, Cain grew vegetables. I've always had a sympathy for Cain because I've tried to grow vegetables. And we know the land was cursed, and that's the case in every garden I've grown. I've had to deal with the curse. Everything from these little bugs that eat my potato plants down to the ground to these rabbits and raccoons that come and ravage my corn and my broccoli. But when they get my Brussels sprouts, something deep inside shifts, and I start taking aggressive action. I'm telling you, There's been something wrong with the land ever since Adam started his journey out of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate from the trees. They didn't have to worry about animals wiping out their garden. But on the outside of the garden, they ate from the ground. Now the Bible says Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now he was not the first person to till the ground. If you go back, Genesis 3.23, we discover that his dad was the first person to till the ground. So Cain isn't coming up with some occupation that's not honorable here. No, uh uh-uh. Therefore the Lord God sent Adam forth from the Garden of Eden, it says, to till the ground from which he was taken. So God gave Adam the job of tilling the ground. It was natural for Cain to become a tiller of the ground too. There is nothing negative about his occupation and calling. God appointed tilling as an occupation necessary on the outside of the garden. But tilling the ground was never intended to be a means of redemption. God never intended that our works, our work in this world, should produce merit to open Eden's door again. You see, we bring the fruit of our life work to God, not because we can buy God off, not because we can find a way to get back in Eden's door. We bring the fruit of our life work to God because we are thankful to God for taking the animal skin and clothing us, taking away our shame, 
and providing a substitute who takes our condemnation away. Genesis 3, 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now there's a direct contrast here. If you look at these verses very carefully, a direct contrast between the sacrifice of Cain and the sacrifice of Abel. First, Cain was slow to come to God to seek God's help and guidance for his life work. He shows his mother's spirit of spiritual independence here. Verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. The Hebrew literally says, At the end of the days, he brought an offering. Cain didn't start with an offering to God. He didn't start his work by being thankful to God. He ended with an offering to God. You see, Cain didn't seek approval from God at the beginning of his life work. He sought the approval of God after he had finished it on his own. He didn't need God to empower him. He didn't need God to enrich him. He didn't need God to guide him. He didn't need God to direct his work and lead in life. He only wanted God's approval of what he himself had done for God himself. Well, that's all the time we have for the first portion of East of Eden. It is a part of the Genesis series, and you can find it online at reachingyourheart.com. That's reachingyourheart.com. Hope you have a chance to stop by because there's many other messages archived for you as well. Again, reachingyourheart.com. I would like to be able to invite you to the worship service live in person, but at this time, due to the current situation, I am not able to do that. But I am able to invite you to a live broadcast so you can watch from the comfort of your home. Just navigate to reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. You'll find previous messages there as well. And you can watch it live Saturdays at 11 o'clock. And we would invite you to go ahead and subscribe to the YouTube channel where that link will take you. Again, reachinghearts.org slash video. In the meantime, go ahead and stop by reachingyourheart.com to listen to this broadcast again. And we want to let you know that we do appreciate you listening. And as always, we do pray that God is reaching your heart.